fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela. Welcome everybody, Steve Suspidelli. I'm coming at you once again with, uh, well, technically the episode two, but this is really episode one since the intro was last week, so this is episode one of a new series. We're doing an economic personalism with Don Brohan and Michael Graney of the Social for Economic and Social Justice up in the Northeast. Uh, buy their book, Economic Personalism. We'll have a link at the end for the show notes uh, to get that book. And get the phone sheet one. That's apparently going out of style right now. Sound like hotcakes. But anyway, good morning whenever, wherever you are. Good morning, Steve. And just say your your uh, viewers hear what our organization is called. Uh, it's the Center for Economic and Social Justice. What did I say? <laughs> In the mid-Atlantic, not the Northeast. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember what I said now. So <laughs> That's okay, Steve. Forgive me. Women are always right, so I was wrong. I'm sorry. There you go. Hey, if a man admits he is wrong to a woman, does that mean he's right? Oh, that's exactly that's how it works. That's that's my it's my thinking. I'm sticking to it. Oh, I set myself up for that. <laughs> so, let's get right into it. What is a person? Why is this even important? Well, I think just to simplify it as much as possible, a person is a thing that has rights. And when I use the word thing, we understand today that you have natural persons, uh, those persons that were human beings, which is a, uh, we are creations of God. And then you also have persons which we recognize in our laws as legal persons, and they've been given rights on uh, behalf of human persons. And so I think just starting with that distinction is, is very important. It's the focus on rights. But then the next thing we have to look at is the difference between natural persons and legal persons. And, and the reason that's important is when we talk about rights, we're talking about social relationships and social obligations that uh, either between individual persons or between people and institutions or people in society. So there's always this idea of social interaction. Um, and that's where I would say we can distinguish between person and individual. So we would say within, if someone were stranded on a, a, an island and there are no other people around, um, that person doesn't have any human beings to interact with. And so the notion of rights becomes kind of moot, especially if there's uh, man-eating animals there that you're, you know, you can't assert your rights to a, a lion that's just about to make you into its lunch. 
So that's uh, just really to start the conversation that we, we really want to understand what makes human beings special, both as unique individuals, but also as uh, creatures that interact in a social way. Yeah, I would say to just to summarize what Don said, you know, legally speaking, a person is that which has rights. And human persons have rights built into them by God as part of human nature. And th that's an important thing to, to remember because we are, human beings are not given rights by God except in, in the broadest sense. God built rights into human beings as part of what human beings are. He didn't first make human beings and then give them rights. See, and this is what happens when people get confused and say that rights come from the state rather than from each human person who delegates them to the state and then the state defines their exercise for the people. I mean, this can sound very confusing, but not, but the way to keep it straight is that keep in mind rights are part of human nature. They're not granted or given by anything else. They, you're not human without rights. This is why people like the Greeks, ancient Greeks, who thought that slaves were human in appearance only because they don't have rights. Uh, obviously, they're not human, so they don't have rights. Human beings have rights. And obviously, this is a human being without rights. Therefore, it's not human. I mean, don't try to figure out the contradictions inherent in that. This is just the way they were thinking. And as a social expedient, we can create artificial persons like institutions and corporations that have a social identity. If you look in a legal dictionary under person, it will say basically words to the effect that a person indicates a human being's place in society and his relationship to all other, you know, persons. It, it, it's a social concept, but because human beings are both individual and social, what Aristotle called political animals, we've gone over that before, I think, uh, be, calling personality a social thing does not take it away from the human being. It's part of what we are. So that saying that there are natural persons like human beings and artificial persons like the state, we come to the necessary conclusion that human beings create the state, the state does not create persons. And I think that what Mike said is very important because if rights are given to us by anything other than what God puts into our nature, they can be taken away. And so this is when we talk about private property as something which is built into us. We have this natural instinct to say, this is mine, uh, to define, okay, what, are, what can I do with this thing that is mine? And one of the things is you cannot have this thing unless I give you permission to take it or use it. I think also from the standpoint of personalism and economic personalism, we start with that, the, the notion of rights uh, starts with the idea of 
intrinsic dignity of each person. And that's something, again, which no one can take away from another person. They may abuse that other person to the point where the, you know, it, it feels like you've destroyed that person's dignity, but it's, it's, it's there and it, no one else has the right to take it away. So when we create uh, rights under the law, we're trying to protect human dignity. And we're talking about each person and not, again, a collective is another form of artificial person. When we talk about society, for example, it in itself doesn't start with the societal dignity. It's each of the human beings within it is invested with human dignity. And so personalism is starting from that concept that rights, dignity, powers, they must start at the level of each human being, not an elite that gives it to a lower class, not the government, which gives it to the citizens, something that the reason why we're even here, that's, you know, that's what we attribute as the source. And this is personalism. Yeah. And I would add, many people are just completely confused about what a right is. There are actually two parts of a right. A right is defined as the power to do or not do some act or acts in relation to others. But that a right itself is divided into two parts, so to speak. I, I mean, a lawyer would tear apart what I'm, what I'm saying immediately by getting very complicated and very esoteric and making a very fine distinctions. Well, do you mean right or no right? Do you mean privilege or lack of privilege or do you, I, forget that. A right is the power to do or not do some act or act in relations to others, in relation to others. It is divided into two parts. There is having a right. In other words, this is absolute in every single human being, the, the natural rights such as life, liberty, and private property. Every single human being has by nature the right to be alive, the right to freely associate liberty, and the right to be an owner now. Then there is the exercise of rights. This is what you can do with your life, how you may exercise your liberty, what you may own, and how you may use what you own. See, two different things. The right to be an owner is not the same as the rights of ownership. In, the, in Catholic social teaching, the right to be an owner, which is absolute and inherent in every single human being, is called, are you ready for this? This won't be on the test. The generic right of dominion. Translated into English, that means that every single human being has the right to have dominion over something. I mean, this is very confusing language because if you say generic right of dominion, some people say, oh, that means that uh, we get to own everything? No, that means that everyone has the right to be an owner. The rights of property, however, they are called, you're not ready for this one, this is called, and this is the one that causes massive confusion, but always keep the generic right of dominion in when understanding, I'm glad you're sitting down, I hope, the universal destination of all goods. Now, 
that's the translation of the Latin, and it is a it's an accurate translation, but it gives exactly the wrong meaning. It does not mean that all goods are destined for everybody. This is the way a lot of people take that. That's not what it means. What it means is that how you use your goods and what you may own must take into consideration everything else. This is, in, in social justice, Father William Faree said that this is doing what you do with an eye to the common good. So however you use what you own, you must always consider the effect on other people and things and the common good as a whole. It doesn't mean that anybody can use what you own or that you can't own anything. This is why I say universal destination of all goods is a really bad way of putting it, even if it's an accurate translation of the Latin. Uh, if you don't take that into, if you don't get understand the real meaning of generic right of dominion and universal destination of all goods, that one refers to every single person's natural right to be an owner, which is absolute and inherent, and the universal destination of all goods refers to the necessarily limited and socially defined exercise of the right to be an owner, then you're going to get involved in a contradiction that you will never resolve, and you'll either turn into an ultra-capitalist or an ardent socialist. And if you can yeah, figure and, out what uh, series that Michael brought those definitions up that we've done previously, you win a free dinner with Michael <laughs> Green. Just put it underneath in the uh, comment section and we'll get back to you. Hey, so, can, I, can I enter that contest, uh, Steve? Um, I also wanted to um, uh, go into a little bit of a, a related area uh, that uh, related to what Mike just said. Um, and that is in terms of rights, you can look at them also uh, from the standpoint of, I have a right and therefore you or others or society have a duty to allow me to exercise that or not take it away. So in terms of private property, for example, if I have the right to private property, which means the right to the fruits of and control over that which I own, then you other people there can't take my thing away from me. You can't take what is produced by my thing away from me. You can't say, okay, now you're gonna use your tractor, you know, to bulldoze down this, you know, the house next to you. No, I'm using that tractor because I have a farm and I need to use it to plow the fields. Um, and when I produce my crops, those crops belong to me, okay, and, and no one else. Now, matter of taxation is another question, but we have that concept within rights, rights and duties. Taxation you know, from here on out will be known as legalized theft. Continue. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and, but as I said, we'll get into the whole question of uh, just uh, taxation in another show. Um, <laughs> the other is the notion of rights and responsibilities. So that has to do with my rights as an owner, for example, but my responsibilities as an owner, which goes back to Mike's, uh, what he was just mentioning about the universal destination of all goods, is that I have the responsibility uh, not to use the thing I have to harm other people, to take away their rights to become owners, 
um, or to damage when we say to harm the common good, we're talking about the social structures that enable all of us, each of us and all of us to develop. So if we, for example, if you have laws, uh, banking laws that allow people to have access to money and credit that's used to, to buy things that will pay for themselves, then if I as an individual exercise my powers as an owner to do something to those that banking system so that all new money and credit just flows to me and my buddies and not to you, we have exercised our right in property in an illegitimate way. So I think what Mike was saying, it, it, it ties in very much into just the idea of rights and duties and rights and responsibilities. Yeah, as so, a footnote, just in case there's any lawyers listening, uh, back in the early 20th century, a man named Wesley Hofeld, forgive him his name, it sounds weird, uh, realized that judges and lawyers were using words and changing the meaning of them in the middle of sentences. So he wrote some articles that were later turned into a book that uh, law students have cursed ever since. Fundamental legal conceptions. The point here is that to be absolutely precise, a duty is not the opposite of a right. It's called the correlative of a right, which means that every single right necessarily implies the correlative duty imposed on one person or all other persons. And then you get really technical about, well, what if it's so many persons? Hofeld gets into that, which is why students curse that book. Uh, the other thing is that the opposite of right is not duty, but uh -huh. no right, not having a right. <laughs> so, yeah. so has... Has the idea of sovereignty different collectivism, individualism, and personalism? I think that uh, relates to our discussion on rights um, in terms of how we define sovereignty and what is that which um, is able to exercise rights, what has powers. And we would say, for example, the question of power. Let's, let's really start with that power and rights. Um, under collectivism, power and rights are assumed to start at a higher level than the person within either society or the collective. And we're all parts of society and collective. And so we're at a, a lesser level, um, a lower level of rights and powers. And so in that case, uh, the thing that has the power and rights is the collective or the state. In individualism, the idea of sovereignty, it may start um, with the idea that um, individuals have, they're, they're sovereign, but not necessarily all individuals. As long as, as it's starting with the human being, um, then it's legitimate sovereignty. So you might, I would say, um, kings, for example, that may be one reflection, although in, in some I think modern systems, they they would see king as part of this entity called the sovereign. Um, and it's reflected in a particular human being. But individualism, the problem with that is that sovereignty and the universality of rights and powers, of human rights and powers, is not structurally diffused. In other words, 
the individual may have these, maybe given these um, inherent rights and powers, but there's nothing to protect one person from another who has the means to exercise power over another individual. So that has to do, I would say, with the idea of how um, institutions are set up. And if we ignore the power and role of institutions on you know, the quality of our lives and how we interact together, then what happens is it becomes you know, whoever's stronger, whoever has more wealth, whoever has more influence. So personalism is saying that it acknowledges dignity, rights, powers, start with each human being from the moment they're born until the moment they die. Okay, this is inherent. But we also recognize that we live in, we live within the context of a common good. And Mike has explained that um, in detail, but just to repeat quickly, it's the network of institutions, laws, uh, human social creations that are there that human beings invent and create in order to help us develop more fully. And if we as sovereign people theoretically don't have access, equal access to that whole network uh, of uh, social institutions, we don't have equal opportunity to develop. And so personalism says we have to maintain that connection between the human person as having inherent dignity, rights, and powers, and that person's relationship to the common good, which we all create over many generations. Yeah. Essentially, I, all I can say is, is repeat in greater detail what Don just said. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, I took away your thunder. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that, that's okay. It makes my life easier. I just sit here and nod sagely and say, that's right. When was the last time you heard a man say that to a woman? That's right. You're right. Like you're digging yourself into such a pit right now. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the modern concept of sovereignty and dignity of the human person has gone through so many filters and so many distortions that in our book, Economic Personalism, we tried as briefly as possible to get to the roots of these things without explaining in great detail or actually in any detail how they got so twisted and distorted. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a fascinating story if you're inter interested in political theory, but you don't really want to hear it here. What it boils down to is that today there are three essential or three basic concepts of sovereignty. And following the analysis of Alexis de Tocqueville in his rather monumental sociological work, Democracy in America, which depended on who you want to argue with was, was the first great sociological work, or if you're a socialist, that was Emil Durkheim, you know, 50 years later, but let's not get into that. Uh, de Tocqueville, because he very closely studied the system in France, in England, and in the United States in the 1830s, came to the conclusion that there are three types of what we call liberal democracy, two of which he didn't care for, and the third of which he strongly endorsed, which, oddly enough, is, this, is almost exactly the same framework used by the Catholic Church in its social teachings. 
One, the one with which uh, de Tocqueville in the wake of the French Revolution grew up with. He called it, you know, French democracy. French style democracy. It was some other people call it the European style. What it is really is collectivism. The collective or the state or whatever stands in for the collective or the state is sovereign. All rights come from the collective to human beings, which thereby creates persons. Then he saw English style liberal democracy. An elite is sovereign. Nominally, everybody is, but only an elite has effective sovereignty. According to Walter Bagehot, who was the primary inspiration for Keynesian economics, this is the moneyed class, the commercial class, the people with money power who have taken over the government of the British Empire. He was talking in the mid 19th century. Uh, the, you know, the, the parliament, the House of Lords and the and Queen Victoria and such people, they're nice. They're there to keep the common people happy because they can understand that. But the real sovereignty rests with the money classes. He called them a chosen people. And he put that, he emphasized that. Because they have money, they are the real rulers of the British Empire. Other, you know, the common people and even the aristocrats and the royalty, they're not really fully human because they may have these rights, but they can't really exercise them. They're not smart enough. They, uh, I forget exactly how Bajit put it, but boiling it down, English liberal democracy is that an elite controls, everybody else goes along with it. And the job of the elite is to take care of everybody. Similarly, in French or European type of liberal democracy, the job of the state is to take care of everybody. Well, then de Tocqueville contrasted this with American liberal democracy, which doesn't really exist anywhere on the globe today, as far as I'm concerned. That is, the human person is sovereign. And everything comes from the people, not the amorphous people, but the organized people, or you know, dealing with each other in free association. Um, the Tocqueville put a great deal of emphasis on freedom of association and how Americans, at least in the 1830s, instead of looking to the state or some other or some rich man, you know, the state as in France or according to Tocqueville, or the rich man as in England, Americans looked to each other. First to themselves, if they can't do it, then they organize with other people and then they get the job done. And so de Tocqueville concluded that, you know, there are no really great men in America in the English sense, nor is there the state in the French sense. Instead, the people rule. They rule themselves. The state is just there to help them do it. And if a great man tries to raise himself up too high, he soon finds himself brought down fairly or not, he was, I mean, this is where you get a lot of the, you know, the extremely crude notions of American equality is that nobody should be sticking themselves up and, you know, making themselves better than anybody else. Well, that's an extreme distortion of what de Tocqueville saw in the 1830s, which is that the people, or people, I should say, without putting the in front of it, did the job themselves. If they needed help, 
they got organized. If they needed more help, well, as a last resort, turn to the state or some rich man to, to give them a hand. But then get back to doing things for yourself. Uh, the fact that this has become so rare, when Benedict the, the 16th spoke about it in one of his essays, he wouldn't even call that liberal democracy because liberal democracy had come to mean rule by an elite in the private sector, capitalism, or rule by an elite in the, in the public sector, socialism. Yeah, that doesn't exist anywhere in the uh, good old United States of America. If you do think it does, please pass the hookah pipe because I'd like a piece of that. Uh, yeah, the, the tradition continues, but not the fact. <laughs> so why is it important in personalism that human person is sovereign? Well, let's uh, first start with the idea of personalism, which is the more general idea, and look at how we govern ourselves where you have sovereignty starting in each person, that's a lot of sovereigns running around and the sovereigns are gonna have conflicts and how do we resolve conflicts and live harmoniously and productively? Um, and that's where we have the idea of democracy. And democracy really, when you look at the, the root meaning of that is how you have, you invest each individual with power and how those individuals can interact politically. So in a political democracy, the mechanism by which we exercise our sovereignty so in a social way is the vote. And everyone in a democracy, a just democracy, is every individual human being is supposed to be to have the right to the vote and exercise it without coercion. So if we look now at economic personalism, how do we exercise our sovereignty within the economy um, in terms of how things are produced and consumed and how we earn an income? And the uh, correlative to the vote in economics is access to the means to acquire property, which means money and credit. And in economic personalism, there's a um, essential uh, emphasis on the money system and understanding what is money and credit being sort of the flip side of money. They, they both symbolize some kind of obligation that there's value connected to the money and credit. Um, and where you have money that isn't um, backed by something of value, you have, it's basically counterfeiting and the government can get away with this because it has the power to tax. And so in the future, when the government creates money that's backed only by its, its debt, it can say, well, we're strong enough and our economy is sound enough that we'll tax in, in the future and that's what will we'll pay off that underlying debt. Well, we don't think that's a good basis for a sound and just money system. Number one, it's putting a lot of power in the government. It's allowing the government to not respect, really respect um, private property. Um, it, it's going to depend on taxation, not just to cover its own legitimate expenses, but also to allow it to engage in all sorts of activities which the sovereign citizens may not have any control or say so. So in order to have economic power, 
you must have property and the right to acquire capital because when we talk about property the property really are the rights uh, and not the things so you have property or these rights in something else and now we're looking specifically at the things that produce and so what we have now are te technologies which hyper produce i mean it's goes vastly beyond what any of us as human beings even a thousand human beings now are replaced by one you know one supercomputer for example so then if that's what becomes more and more the reason or the what is actually creating our goods and services and not so much people we don't have a thousand people you know tied up to a uh, a bunch of gears we have one thing that we create that's um, controlling that or making it possible so then if people are less needed in the economy how are they going to earn a living you know and so you have government called upon to you know pay out a minimum wage and there's no real logical basis for this in terms of what is the correct amount for a minimum wage that will allow each of us to at least survive you know pay or have a house or have a, a, a roof over our heads have enough food we don't starve you know medicine and education etc well that can shift i mean that that's sort of something which is there's no necessarily a an exact objective number and so that becomes another political decision and you use the power of many people to force that into the whole process of producing and uh, consuming and we would say in economic personalism you have to enable each person to become through either labor capital ownership or a combination of both you have to enable them to become productive so that they can legitimately say, this is the income I produced. And this is you know, the, the property itself, what it produces is mine. So you could say, for example, even children, a baby, a newborn baby, you go, well, baby's not going to be much, you know, be able to contribute much labor uh, into, into the process, nor should that baby be forced to do that. But the laws can be set up so that the baby on the day it's born is now able to actually acquire the means to start accumulating capital. Now, parents are going to be responsible for making sure this is done in a sound way. But the baby, it, him or herself, can have the means through money and credit, which has to be exercised in a, in a, a reasonable system, to acquire new capital assets such as shares in uh, companies that use these new robots and whatever artificial intelligence to acquire shares that will pay for themselves pay off those loans the credit with the future stream of profits that those assets themselves produce so you have not the baby is you know producing the income through labor the baby is producing through the baby's contribution of um, capital its share of the capital thereby giving by right that baby well the right to the income produced and eventually uh the ability to vote the property right so this is that's a, a an extreme example but what it's saying is that we have to spread out 
economic power. And we have to ensure that every individual human being has the and can exercise the right to become an owner. So that's that's why we would say it's important that each person be sovereign, not only in the political system, but also in the economic system. To get cosmic and to summarize what Don said, I will abstract. How do you like that? Which is basically a fancy word for saying generalize. You have to, you know, why is it important that a person be a person? Because it deals with the meaning and purpose of life. I mean, you didn't know you were going to get that in this show, did you? Uh, so you can take notes and you will know the meaning and purpose of life. Uh, and you will pass the great test, which is to become more fully human. It is a basic principle of Thomist philosophy and thus of Catholic theology and of American political theory that every single person is as human and is human in the same way as every other person. This is called the, the law or the principle of non or contradiction. Fult, according to Fulton Sheen, the whole philosophy of Aquinas is built on that principle. If you're a person, you are fully a person. Well, obviously, we can see that not everybody acts the same, not everybody looks the same, not everybody is the same. But as human beings, we are as fully human and are human in the same way as all other humans. So what is the purpose of society? If we're already fully human, why do we even need to go through all this mess and qualify for our final end? If, I mean, if you're a Christian, you believe it's to be with God in heaven. If you're, I don't know, something else, it's something else. <laughs> we won't get into that. But we are all fully human. But that's defined as having the capacity to become more fully human. You may have to think about that for a minute. Becoming more fully human means, you know, in philosophical or theological terms, becoming virtuous. Virtue is a Latin word meaning maleness, but it means humanness. So as you acquire and develop virtue, you become more fully human. You're not, you don't become human, you become more fully human. That's an important point. Now, in order to be able to acquire and develop virtue or become more fully human, you have to exercise your rights. And to be able to exercise your rights, however, you need power. Power is defined as the ability for doing. And where do you get this ability for doing? From owning property because property or as daniel webster put it and i keep 201 years ago uh in 1820 power naturally and necessarily follows property why do you need to be a person to be able to become virtuous and or more fully human and you need rights of life liberty and property so that you can be you know, exercise the virtues to become virtuous. Uh, so yeah. what is the common good and how does a human personalism 
Or how does the human person in personalism relate to it? Well, as Mike was saying, we're talking about human beings and their capacity to become more fully human. And in order to do that, we need things, these social tools called institutions. And the, I guess one way of looking at institutions is um, going back to the word Mike brought up, virtue. Father Free used to talk about virtue as a set of good habits. So it's not like a one-off time that you happen to do as an individual that you show courage one moment and you're never courageous again. It's that you develop the habit of being courageous or being generous. So that becomes, that is part of your development as a human being, that you're actually growing in these things, these, these virtues. Now, in order to do that, it can either be made easier or made much more difficult, depending on whether you have these, he called them props of uh, human dignity. And those are things like property. It's just those social creations that make it easier for all of us to develop our virtues, to become more fully human. If, for example, you have institutions that keep the bulk of people in a state of fear, insecurity, or servitude to others, then those institutions are preventing the most human beings then from becoming more human. So we have to look at our institutions and how they're designed. Are they recognizing each person's sovereignty, that notion of where power and rights start with not just a few human beings or the government, but with each of us? Do those institutions recognize that? Do they facilitate that? Or do they hamper that? When they hamper that, that's when Father Free would say, we have to engage in acts of social justice. And that means in the act of social justice is how we organize with other human beings in order to correct effective institutions. So if there's something in the laws which are preventing people from freely associating with others, we got to change the laws. And so that's, that's what happened um, when the segregation laws were ended, that you had, this was just built into the law and you had the power of the government and the police to enforce laws, which prevented a big segment of the population from participating in an equal way, in a full way. So it, segregation, and this is something um, uh, my father, was uh, became um, a, a lawyer, and during when he was in law school, uh, he said that people were saying the segregation laws would not be overturned for 200 more years. This was in the late 50s or, or early 60s, and so what happened then to change the laws, um, and that included the voting rights law also, um, was that people came together and organized. And this was something that was happening for decades before. So it didn't just happen overnight. It's a long process, but people clarified what their moral objective was. That was one person, one vote. And so when that objective becomes apparent to the greater society and that you have pressure that this organized, organized body of people 
who are um, calling for a moral objective, it becomes harder and harder to resist that. And so eventually when you had certain things fall into place, um, you had the laws changed. Now the problem is that, okay, so um, one of those institutions, let's say the, the vote, free, the equal vote, that was instituted, but you didn't have the same thing happening in terms of economics. So therefore you have people with a vote, but maybe no independent means to produce a living. They could be sharecroppers, for example, and that's sort of your, it's perpetual servitude. You never, it's very hard to escape that. And you have other ways that people um, lose their ability to, to develop fully. So that's why, you know, we look to the common good as all those institutions and we have to monitor them. You know, are they preventing equal participation? If they are, and if the system won't allow us to change it through something like the vote, a very peaceful or orderly way, then that's where, as Father Faree said, people have to come together, organize, know what is the defect, know what needs to be uh, corrected, and then just keep working at it until the system is changed. Yeah. Again, I can't add too much to what you <laughs> Sorry, Mike. <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're making my life easy. Uh, er, it's never gonna be easy. Uh, how I suffer. Uh, but, you know, essentially the common good is not the aggregate of individual goods, nor is it this vague thing that, you know, people refer to whenever they want something. In other words, oh, you're going against the common good. Well, what is it you're talking about? It's something very specific, as Father Faree pointed out. It is that vast network of institutions or social habits within which human beings as what Aristotle called political animals interact and become more fully human by their interactions and how they, they carry them out. Of course, you can also go the other way. You become less fully human or vicious instead of virtuous. But the institutions themselves are not vicious or virtuous. This is why Pope St. John Paul II spoke of structures of virtue, not virtuous structures, but structures that help us become virtuous, but they're, they're, they're neutral in and of themselves. Uh, for instance, a political party is it's just a political party. It's neither good nor bad as a thing. The Nazi party, however, was a structure of vice or something, a, a vicious, a, a structure of viciousness. It was not a structure of virtue. And I realized that a lot of people would say the Democratic Party and the Republican Party today are structures of viciousness and not virtue because they're not really helping us carry out our political duties or roles effectively they're actually inhibiting it by limiting, limiting, you know, the people who are selected as candidates. I mean, I don't think anyone in this country would argue that the people we have in general as political candidates are really the best people for the job. The system itself militates against them, the, the best people becoming, you know, candidates for public office. 
as the as someone said in the late 19th century the best people don't go into politics but that's getting a little bit aside the common good is that vast network of institutions and it can be specifically identified and because it can be specifically identified it can be the directed object of a virtue and this was father Faree's whole point which he got from Pius XI. Prior to Pius XI, it was thought that the common good is either the aggregate of individual goods, which it is not, or this vague concept that is, you know, the fallout from people being virtuous, individually virtuous or vicious. That if that is what the common good is, is this is this general attitude or general atmosphere of society. No, it is very specific and it can become the object of virtue, which we call social charity and social justice. And the job of social justice is if our institutions are flawed or not performing their jobs the way they should, helping us become more virtuous, then we can directly act on the on the, our institutions bring them into closer conformity with our wants and needs as human persons so that they do their job that's the act of social justice it's not doing you know distributing charity or doing any individual act it's the job of social justice is to make individual virtue possible not to substitute for it yeah and i would just also emphasize that social justice is not socialism. Social justice, and this, this took me a number of years to finally understand after uh, reading Father Free's introduction to social justice several times. Which is available free on the CESJ website. Yes, thank you for that plug. We were going to get the plugs later. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> no, you see the hole, you plug it right away. Yeah, there you go. Um, the thing that was it took a while for me to understand is that when you use the term social justice, it's not that this act of social justice is carried out by an abstract collective and done to an abstract collective. It is a, a human, an individual duty, the right, the duty of every person that when an institution becomes defective or excludes people or harms people. It is our duty as human beings, as persons, social creatures to come together, organize, identify where the defect is and correct that to, to fix that institution. So we could look at a very important one is our money system. How is money created? What is the basis? What underlies our money? And because this is supposed to be inkjet um, number ninety nine, right? What's that? Inkjet uh, color ninety nine. Uh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, and another example is Bitcoin. Uh, today, over the radio, I heard it's now valued at fifty thousand dollars for, I guess, one Bitcoin. Now, in terms of how that's going to help produce marketable goods and services, that is not very clear to me. But also, Bitcoin. How many? have nots how many poor people could ever buy a bitcoin you know that's a form of money 
that is outside the possibility of most people on the planet ever having. So in terms of making sure that everyone has access to, to the means to become an owner, to become uh, economically independent and have economic power, that form of money, the basis for Bitcoin or the basis for any of our, you know, the, you know, the dollar or, or US monetary system or any countries, it's not legitimate. There's something within that in those institutions, money creation, banking system, that is actually preventing people from ever becoming owners, capital owners, to the extent that they could become economically independent. So if they couldn't provide their labor anymore, they could live off the earnings of their capital. Our money system does not allow that. In fact, it prevents it. And there, we'll get into that in some of the later segments. But that's where, once we understand, enough people understand where the problem is in the money system and what needs to be fixed in such a way that you don't violate anyone's private property rights. The wealthy will have, they'll be as secure in their private property rights as the poorest human being who now has access to the means to become a capital owner. So that's where um, a central focus of economic personalism will be on how do we correct the institutions of money, credit, and banking? So, Michael, Don, where can we get the book at? Because uh, you guys go in deeper on this topic. Well, the well, book itself is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You know, just plug in either of our names in the author section on, in the search. Uh, it's also available on the CESJ website. And I don't recall the URL at the moment, but you can flash it on the screen as soon as you find it out. It's it's okay. on the screen now. CSJ.org slash economic dash personalism dash book. Yes, you got it. And there's, and so, and there's also, a, we have a blog on our homepage, um, which uses that title. So in two different places, if you scroll down under uh, special features, and I think it's one of the recent um, on the left-hand side of what's new at CESJ. And that will give you, uh, it's sort of like a book review or explanation of the book. And it has links to uh, the page where you can either order uh, the uh, printed copy from Amazon or Barnes Noble, or you can download a free copy of uh, the book from the CESJ website. So that's, a, I'd say a good place for people to start. All right, Mike, Don, appreciate it as always. Uh, what's on for next week? Uh, you would ask that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Let me, let me look in the book here. <laughs> this is terrible. Well, one of the things we'll, we will probably discuss very quickly is um, what was the historical basis for our coming up with the term economic personalism and how did assert a particular event that CESJ was involved in, how did that represent the merging of uh, several different strands of thought, including uh, Pope John Paul II's concepts of personalism, but also the economic uh, concepts of Lewis Kelso and Mortimer Adler and a, a number of other thinkers, Pius XI and Father Faree. So, in that, that's how the book will start. And so that's 
um, was presented so that people see that this is very rooted in history. And it's a combination of ideas that were running parallel to each other and had never really come together. That was not only the right of a human being to become an owner, but also the right of access to the means to become an owner. And that's where the money and credit connect to the idea of capital ownership. Very good. Well, Michael, Don, appreciate it as always. And uh, see you guys next time. Okay. Thank you so much, Steve. You're very welcome. Bye.